monsters, madness, and magic. All right, Dan, so we usually start off by giving our guests the floor and allowing them to tell everybody how they found themselves in the biz, but I got a specific starting point I want to start with you with. I want to talk about your childhood UFO club and how that had some influences on Guy Man. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a product of the like late 70s, 80s, um, you know, sort of alien, Bigfoot, Devil's Triangle, Loch Ness Monster, you name it. It was everywhere. And I had a subscription to UFO magazine back in those days. And <laughs> so me and my buddies in Florida and our little neighborhood decided we'd start a UFO club and, you know, kind of do our own investigative searches for evidence throughout the neighborhood and that sort of thing. And so we were really into it. We read a lot of stories about Benny and Barty Hill and, um, you know, Roswell, of course, and all those, uh, all those kind of classic stories. And, and I was just really into it as a kid and we didn't actually see anything or find any real evidence, but, um, but along about that time, Close Encounters came out and I was done. After that, I'm like, wow, I want to make movies and I want, I want, want to kind of help people feel or make people feel the way I did at that film. It just really sort of changed me for, for, you know, I don't know, for better or worse, but, uh, but that was sort of the turning point for me. Did y'all run around like with a video camera? Did you have, which back then I was born in 80. So this was a yeah. little bit before my time. I mean, did y'all have like, what was a super eight one of them hand crank models with I mean, like, I had I had a Super 8 um, for a while, but I used that to make like stupid movies and stuff. We didn't, we didn't actually have any footage, but I had a, I had a, a regular camera camera, like a little DSLR camera, or not a DSLR, an SLR camera. <laughs> um, there, was, there was no digital, yeah. It's <laughs> um, so yeah, we took a bunch of pictures and, um, and it was really my first time I, I pulled a hoax. It was, it was a really bad hoax. It was like, I took a, piece of plexiglass and used clay and made flying saucers on the clay and I held it in front of the camera and I took pictures of it over the houses over our neighborhood and showed <laughs> some of my friends and uh, so that was probably the early inkling indications of Blair in those early days <laughs> yeah kind of fooling people now where but, was uh, this if I'm sorry in to uh, Florida in uh, I grew up in Sarasota and then I moved to Fort Myers and a lot of it happened in Fort Myers so, yeah, I was in Florida up until 2000, I guess, 2001. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, cool. That did just trying to get a locate because, see, I'm in, I'm in Carolina and oh, cool. uh, South Carolina, Aiken, the uh, Augusta, Georgia area, Angelique's oh, in nice. Silverton, yeah. Georgia. So, we're kind of yeah. close to you. Nick's in Alabama. Justin's about 20 minutes from me. And, Jason, I don't know where the hell you live yet, but I'll find <laughs> not you. Very, <laughs> not very far from you, actually. Well, I, I, lived, in, I lived in Alabama for a while. I, I live in Seattle now, but I was in Alexandria, Alabama, just near Jacksonville for a while. Um, my wife is from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and um, so I know the area well. We used to go summer camping up there in Highlands, um, up in uh, the Carolina-Georgia border up there in that area. Yeah. Almost yeah. every summer we'd go up there. It's great. Beautiful. Oh, dude. dude, that's cool. Yeah. Dan, I got to ask you about, um, so I'm sitting here watching Scott, man, and myself, I have a lifelong fascination with the strange, if you will. And uh, I see Rendles from Forest come up. Then I'm seeing some owls pop up in the movie, and I'm wondering while I'm watching if you're going where I think you're going and going to who I think you're going to. So then when you get to that high tension moment in the movie and you drop the Mike Clellan bomb, I was like, yes. I just want to ask you, like, what does Mike Clellan's work uh 
are you have you uh, read it yourself have you looked into it and uh, just to let you oh, know yeah, yeah. here with my copy of the messenger so yeah i read his book i think it's a great book as a matter of fact i just had an interview with somebody last week that that knows him personally and uh according to that person he said uh, Cl uh mike was uh very very flattered that he was referenced in the film which is very cool but um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I guess for me, I mean, the, the subject matter in this whole sort of subculture, this UFO subculture, I, I wanted to treat it seriously. I wanted to treat the characters seriously. Um, Carl is not a whack job or anything right. like that. And, and I wanted people that were knowledgeable about UFOlogy, experiencers themselves, to, when they watched the film, they, they, they would know I, I did my homework. And, and that I wasn't just sort of skimming through like some TV show or whatever. This is, there's really references deep throughout the film that, you know, it took me two years to make it. And we did a lot of research. Mike, the actor, Mike Sully, the actor himself, did a lot of research as well. So, so yeah, that, that, uh, that Messenger's book in particular had a big impact on me about um, screen memory and, and, and how people see these owls or, 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 you know, maybe it's something with the mind trying to replace something they can't explain. And so we touch into those, those aspects and those themes through Carl's character. Um, and we don't hit anybody over the head with it, but it's just, you know, a, a kind of authentic, subtle reminder that Carl's for real. He's done his research and, um, and he's serious about, about his experience and, and, and looking for answers. Can I, uh, Joe, all right. I, I heard you had a, a flick called Skyman. Uh, Justin and I were talking about this when we were setting up the interview. And uh, I mean, whenever it was like, we're talking with you, I, I don't care. I mean, <laughs> it was just like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll talk. Yes, sir. I mean, just one of my biggest influences. I have not seen Skyman. I hadn't heard about Skyman. So the reason I kind of wanted to interject this would catch everybody, anyone listening early on in this, pitch me Skyman. Now I am a lifelong Blair Witch scared the shit out of me. I saw it and I thought it was real. Like mm -hmm. I'm into that vein. Grew up like whenever reason I ask where you're from, because you know I grew up with the Lizard Man and the ufology and stuff, following right. all of that. So that in mind, pitch me Sky Man. What is this flick? Because I'm already excited about it. But I mean, pitch well, me. first, I mean, Sky Man's not a horror movie. That's first and foremost. If you're expecting a horror movie, this is not that. But it is. It is in that same sort of documentary, docudrama vein. It's, it's me kind of getting back to my roots in that style of filmmaking. It's not a found footage film like Blair, but it is a documentary where I'm, I'm asking the questions. I'm the documentarian doing, doing the, the, the coverage of, of this guy, Carl. And the basic premise of the film is about this man, Carl Merriweather, claims he was visited by an alien out in the desert with his father at their old bug out shelter. When he was 10, he said he had this experience with this so-called Skyman. And now cut to 30 years later, and he's feeling compelled that this Skyman's coming back for a visit. So he's convinced his sister and his best friend to go back out to the shelter with him for the weekend that he thinks it's going to come back and have a reunion. So I'm documenting that reunion, that process of him going out to the shelter. So it, it dabbles into a lot of experiencer stuff. Um, you know, we shot footage at UFO festivals, the Roswell Festival, the one in, New or I um, shouldn't say New Orleans, but um, in Oregon, in McMinnville, Oregon. And we talked to a lot of experiencers ourselves. So it's a blend of, of real people and actors, you know, and our main, our main characters. 
but um, but all the themes and, and a lot of the references are all very true. It's all inspired by true events. So um, cool. and pretty much all shot in the desert. We we were I mean, we were out there for a month or so, almost six weeks, just shooting everything in the desert. It was really cool. New Mexico? No, in uh, Southern California, in Apple oh. Valley. Oh, okay. So, um, I was wondering, every time it comes up to UFOs, it's always New Mexico. It's always New Mexico. It's, it's in the desert somewhere, but it's all, yeah. New Mexico gets a lot of, <laughs> gets a lot of traffic, sure. Uh, speaking of shooting in the desert, I'm a big fan of your old, uh, your, one, your previous film, The Objective. Oh, and cool. It had a... This movie, Skyman, to me, seems like the logical evolution to the objective in a lot of ways. Like, in the objective, you had the little, I believe it was called the Sakara bird that the agent found in the cleric's house. And in this one, you had the owl references. It just, it all sort of ties together in a Dan Murek cinematic universe, almost. No, I mean, that's a good, that's a good observation. I, you, obviously, through a lot of my films, you can see these themes throughout. And, and the objective was, um, you know, sort of a uh, sci-fi mystery film, but, but sort of in the guise of a military sort of action movie. And, uh, but certainly some overlap with, with a lot of the Vimanas and, and ancient astronauts, which is a, was a big uh, inspiration for me growing up. So there's a lot of references to ancient astronauts in that film. So, so yeah, I'm always fascinated by that subject matter. And, you know, the objective had a much bigger budget and we shot everything over in Morocco, which was doubling as Afghanistan at the time. But, um, but it was a lot of fun to shoot that film. It was, it was, it was hard work, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, but you're right. There are, there's, you know, look wise and, and feeling wise, there's some similarities between the, between the two films and it kind of carries carries throughout a lot of my stuff uh the uh how much were you involved exactly in the uh, i believe 2015 reboot of blair witch not very much i mean um you know we were approached by lionsgate that they had um decided to do a, a, a another sequel asked me to come in to kind of read the script and under lock and key, right? And um, so Simon Bear, who wrote the script, I I, uh, I was a little nervous because the 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 original sequel by Joe Berlinger and and uh, I think it was Dick Beebe wrote it. You know, as a standalone film, I didn't I didn't dislike the movie. It just I, what I what I really bugged me about that first sequel is that it sort of broke the mythology. And, and um, so I was a, a little afraid they were going to continue doing that with this most recent incarnation of the movie so i was pleased to see when i read it oh they're they're sticking with it with the conceit of our original premise which was cool and um so i thought of the sequels that have been made so far i think that was my favorite so far but we every time we get an opportunity to kind of pitch both ed and I, ed sanchez and i can get an opportunity to interface with lionsgate on blair we try to pitch them our ideas on subsequent blair movies but so far it's it's kind of falling on deaf ears. So we'll see. We'll, 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 maybe they'll continue doing sequels and, and eventually come back around to the guys that actually made the movie. The original, <laughs> right. let us, let us that seems stop. to be the way it happens. Was know, it a, weird. It's a stupid question, but I mean, was it a big, has there always been a, been the usual clamoring for a sequel, but has Blair Witch, has it been a hot commodity 
like whenever you say it because when i never saw that new blair witch this and that's not me being an edge lord it just kind of flew i had so much going on it's like oh blair witch but then the jaded adult in me is like well it's not going to be you know i'm never going to get that back the way i felt when i saw that first flick so part of me i just i don't want to see it you know i told my son about it go watch it you know but yeah i never saw it but had there always been a clamoring for a sequel to blair Witch i mean it's like I, certainly right after the movie i mean there's a there was a, a lot of hype i, th- I felt that was really overhyped it was overexposed for quite a while and and you know and studios being studios like okay let's strike while the iron is hot and then we can make a bunch of money and da, 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 da. and so we said all right you guys go do your thing we don't really want any involvement and um and they offered us a lot of money to, to direct the, the, the immediate follow-up and we just said thanks but no thanks and so and then you know as the cult following grew and built um, you know, I'm pleased as a filmmaker to see today, like my, my son's friends, a lot of his friends love Blair Witch and like, your, your dad's a Blair Witch guy. And they're like, I just signed a poster for one of them the other day. So <laughs> it's nice to see a new generation of kids digging the movie. Right. And, um, so that's cool. But for me, as a filmmaker, as a quote unquote artist, I, I try not to think about too much what's come before, what's right. supposed to come after, whatever. It's like, you got to make the movie stand on its right. own two feet, right? So if we're going to make another Blair movie, Blair's just a name. The right. movie itself has got to kick ass. I mean, it really has to rock. That's that's the way we approached the first film. And if it falls, if it fails, then so be it. At least we can't be accused of not trying something cool and different. But, um, but you're right. It's like, you're never going to have that first date again, right? I mean, it's like... We, we, we did something really unique and special in those days. And, you know, whether I, I or someone else will do it again in the, in the future remains to be seen, but I'm confident someone else will do something else like that. But, um, but yeah, it's not going to be the same movie. Right. And, and right. my thing is, I think there are good movies in the whole Blair canon. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've fantasized about making a, Blustin, a Rustin Parr film or an origin story, an Ellie Kedward origin story or what have you. There's a lot of, stuff in the Blair universe you could mine to make their own standalone films, right? That wouldn't take anything away from the first film experience, right? So I think um, I think that's very possible to do. I'm so hopeful that Lionsgate will want to do that. But but yeah, it's 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 interesting to see how the original generation has responded to the film and how they've grown up with the film. I get lots of people, their recollection where they were when they saw the original film, which is always really cool to hear about. Um, and then a whole new generation that heard about Blair, had visited it for the first time, and now are, are pretty anxious to see something, you know, afterwards. So it just right. depends on who you talk to. Everyone's got their own sort of different take on it. And I didn't want to, and again, it's because I know you get it all the time. Blair Witt, Blair Witt, Blair Witt. The reason mm-hmm. I was asking about that, first of all, because I love it, but, <laughs> but also the with the clamoring for the sequel, the question about that with the remake of the Blair Witch. And then of course, but you already went back into that talking about loose about like the, the marketing that went into that, the way y'all built that mythos and stuff. So with your movie, Sky Man, mm-hmm. I know you've, I know you've done it subconsciously without attempting to, because directors, you know, artists can't help doing that, but are there any things that you, that you knowingly kind of did with Skyman as far as the marketing aspects of it or the world building in Skyman. I know you said it's more of a documentary that right. you're kind of going for that, but is there still, I mean, is there any kind of 
extra flourishes you might have done for this i just i'm really curious about this film now i'm i'm certainly going to watch it but i'm just now that i got you on the other end of the camera <laughs> go ahead yeah, and another questions i mean you're always trying to like find something fresh and new with whatever movie you make right you're trying to mm. find a there's so much being made out there there's so much traffic and youtube and whatnot so you have to find some ways to break through all the chaff. And I, I think with Skyman, you know, it, it started off being sort of a personal movie. And I knew it was going to be a really small film by design because it's supposed to be like a small documentary movie. So it wasn't going to be big, flashy effects and all that good stuff. Um, I wanted to feel intimate and authentic, like we were following this guy's life around. So I guess for me, artistically, I wanted something that felt real and authentic and, and sincere. You know, that really was 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 treating the subject and the subject matter seriously and let the chips fall where they may. Right. Okay. And so and I think that uniqueness to the film, if, when you, if you're talking about something new to it, is like what I didn't want to do was make another quote unquote UFO movie right. where the alien comes out at the end and freaks everybody out or whatever. <laughs> I haven't really seen a movie too much that really talks about the experiencer and their and their experience and how their family is dealing with it and how he's reconciling what he saw when he was a kid and it's really the fact that it's a ufo film is sort of in the background it's really about this guy looking for redemption with his father who died of a heart attack he was in the war but he later died of a heart attack. so is this kind of a sad tragic story of this guy's life it's been sort of an outsider his whole life treated as sort of a freak and he just wants some validation, right? So it's a personal yeah. story of this that that um, is I felt kind of unique to the subject matter. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of UFO stories tell it from that perspective. So that was right. the way we were trying to market it, the way we were trying to angle it to the audience that, that this isn't your normal UFO movie. It's not your it is sci-fi, but it's not your typical sci-fi film. I like how you said it's more of a documentary. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. People clamor for that. It seems it's like in vogue right now. You know, the uh, like you got the true crime and the good documentaries and stuff. But I mean, a a good documentary is always tough to find, and one right. that I'm interested in is even tough, <laughs> even yeah, tougher yeah, yeah. to find. <laughs> so that's why I said I'm all over this one. That's kind of why I wanted to get as much information on it as I could. <laughs> yeah. I get it. I get it. Uh, you and Ed Sanchez mentioned back in the day that you, when you guys were making the Blair Witch, one of your primary points was you wanted to make us, you wanted to scare people. It's well, you wanted to be truly terrifying. Do you think that was something that was lacking in the nineties? Well, I think it sort of adds and flows, right? I mean, you know, when I was growing up, you know, films like Jacob's Ladder and the Exorcist and the Omen series came out and they, freaked me out man like the shining i mean those were you look back at those films and you look at the craftsmanship and the thought that went into the characters and the writing and and uh and i was like you know jaws like traumatized me <laughs> and, right. and um and then there was a time where it got kind of silly i mean horror films became sort of self-referential and i love that i love the comedy horror genre it's one of my favorite genres but the films that were telling you that they were really scary weren't actually scary they were just kind of goofy and and it was like they weren't even really trying to be scary they were purposely being goofy which is fine but but for me it's like i wanted to make a movie again that truly scared people you walked out of the movie theater both ed and i said we really want to scare people and so we dug deep in our own psyches about what what still gets under our skin even as adults what 
what would be truly terrifying? What kind of situation, what kind of supernatural situation could you be in that would really be a primal fear? And that's what we really tried to drill down into with Blair Witch. And, and we knew it was going to be low tech. We knew it was going to be sort of a documentary style with unknowns and whatnot. And, um, but the approach we took to it, this kind of method approach we took to the filmmaking was totally experimental. We didn't know if that was going to work or not. But uh, our goal, our end goal was always to make something at the end of the day that was truly terrifying. The way you, so taking that from the Blair Witch, that low tech approach, was that, again, I know nothing about Skyman. So did you take that approach still with Skyman or is it kind of like Blair Witch only with a better camera? <laughs> no, I mean, but the, at the end of the day, you, you have to, I tell this to every young filmmaker that it's about story and character first. If it's not on the page, it's not going to magically appear on the screen. And, you know, once you have your story and characters kind of written and fleshed out, then what does that story and scare to character, what is that, how does that speak to you visually? And is this a big scope movie? Is this a film that, that needs to be on IMAX? Or is this the kind of story and character that's going to be best told with an intimate little documentary camera. And for me, that's what Skyman was. Skyman's a different movie than The Objective or other films that I've done, because I felt this was a personal story of the main protagonist, and it needed to be an intimate sort of day in the life of this guy in Apple Valley, California, looking for answers. And that, for me, a documentary was the best style in which to tell that story. And so the story dictated the way I shot it. And if I had $10 million, I probably wouldn't have shot it any differently. And Blair, if I learned anything from Blair, it taught me that because I wouldn't have shot Blair Witch any differently either. So that, that to me is the number one lesson is what, what does the script dictate to you? And that's what you should be shooting for and not worry about what anyone else is saying, you know, that, that you, you taught an entire generation yes. that to not worry about it and to just go yeah. and film it. And it's all in the story. I mean, hell, every audio drama I write essentially is because of the Blair Witch. I'm like, yeah, you, <laughs> you taught us. Something. That's for sure. We all learned that one. <laughs> well, and I learned from others. I mean, everyone learns from everybody else. I'm still blown away to, like to this day about how, how much amazing stuff is out there, how, how many talented people are out there. And, and we're all sort of copying each other's work, right? We're all informing each other's work. And that's, that's the collective artistry of filming that I think is so sort of magical, you know, that, that we're all influenced both consciously and subconsciously by everything we watch and see. And um, sometimes we can point our finger, right? Oh, that's a Hitchcockian move right there. And other times it's much more <laughs> subtle and it's just influencing in our DNA. And I think that's just awesome. That's just makes us all, part of the same sort of artistic um, collective, which I think is really cool. It's so nice to hear a Hitchcockian reference instead of the Lovecraftian. It's a, <laughs> yeah, nice, yeah. It's a nice <laughs> change of pace in the lexicon. I'm, I'm guilty. I'm just saying it mainly out of guilt because I was like, oh, Lovecraftian. But then it's like, well, no, not that. It's not that love. It's the other Lovecraftian. But no, it's nice to hear. Ah, Hitchcockian. I got another one. Let me write it. Write that one down. I say Kubrickian a lot too. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Maybe one day so is Nyrickian. <laughs> I think there's already a, so a as few as, tendencies out there. For sure. As far as influences go, um, 
you know, obviously you, you can draw from a lot of sources, but there's not a whole lot of the found footage stuff before you do Blair Witch, and then there's a plethora afterwards. Right. But did you draw influences from anything like Cannibal Holocaust or anything like that? Well, it's funny, we didn't know Cannibal Holocaust existed until after the movie came out. Someone pointed it out to us and said, you know, there's a movie that was done in the 70s that was very similar premise-wise to Blair. And I'm like, really? And so we watched it and like, wow. But... <laughs> I think, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think we all had that reserve. Wow. It was pretty hardcore. Um, but I think the, the primary influences for, for me was like I had said before, like ancient astronauts, Leonard Nimoy's in search of, which was very, very popular back when I was growing up. And those are all sort of like pseudo documentaries. You know, there's a lot of, um, scripted stuff in there, but also reality stuff. And, and then we were also sort of coming of age in the time of the internet, MTV, real world had just come out at the time, 24-7 um, news. So all that was sort of, you know, in the mix. Yeah, the sort of a whole zeitgeist that fed yeah. into it. That's yeah, really yeah. cool. Yeah, it was a whole... What about, uh, what about the film... Uh, the last broadcast, if you're familiar with that, they came out almost yeah. around the same time. What are your thoughts on that film? Because it's very similar, but it's it's also very distinct from your film. Yeah, there was a, there was a little bit of a kind of back and forth with those guys. I think they they discovered that we were making this movie. Well, I think it was Stefan Avalos. His name is. They were doing the rounds. They were doing sort of like self distribution or something. They were because they claimed that they had shot it for like nine hundred bucks or something like that, but. Um, I thought it was a pretty decent movie, but they they got all kind of bent out of shape because they thought we copied their film, and we had we had we had no way of seeing their movie before we had shot well, right. we like a year before, so we had no way of even seeing their movie. But um, so there's a little bit of you know uh, I, I wouldn't say rivalry, but I think they were upset that we were coming out around the same time they were, but. You know, if you watched both films, you could see they're two, two completely different films. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's... And we were... Ben and I were a little bummed out because when we first heard about those guys, like, of all the times for us to make a found footage film, these other guys are doing it too, right? Because we, we hadn't seen their movies. So we're like, great. But what timing, right? So then we saw their film. We were, then, we, then, then we felt we were okay because we had, you know, we were out in release and stuff. So it's like... Right. Um, but, you know, there's always competition. I've, I'm a, you know... I believe in this, the old adage that nothing is original. Everyone's, like I said, pulling from everybody else. And there's only a handful of stories that get retold in different ways a million different times. So, you know, uh, I think they, they, they did okay. They went to DVD and, and um, they had a, you know, kind of a, a modest distribution, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, but once Blair hit, it, everything everything was a blur after that for me for about two years. I imagine so. Yeah. I mean, to your credit, I've never heard of the last broadcast. I, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> thanks to Nicholas for bringing that to my attention because I never even heard of that. And the one I was going to say was it was for the longest time I thought it was y'all because the St. Francisville experiment feels like something y'all would do. It, I, right. it really does. Now that might just be absolute amateur nature of myself. 
watching it. But for the longest time, I thought y'all had something to do with it. Then, of course, realized, no, that was Ted Nicolaw, and that was those guys from yeah. there. But, I mean, there was a lot of flourish in that movie that made me – that at least felt genuine, and it was just – Yeah, uh, there's, there's been several. I mean, Quarantine, I thought, was a pretty good movie, and um, certainly Last Broadcast came out, like, 10 years later, which, which had its own kind of explosion. And um, so, I mean, you know – we certainly don't own the found footage genre. I mean, it's if it's if it's done well and the execution is is top notch, it can be a really effective way to, to 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 tell a horror story. It's a it's a great. I mean, there's a whole different set of rules and problems you have to contend with taking that approach, and you have to respect that conceit. But if if it's done well, it's very very effective. It really yeah. is. Did you find? jumping from something like Blair Witch that had a narrative. Y'all had a plan. Yeah. Doing Skyman was this, I don't know if more diff, maybe more difficult, more challenging in that it's kind of, oh God, wow, watch me fly my nerd flag. It's kind of like jumping from Dungeons and Dragons and then jumping into Dungeon World. Right. Because in Dungeons and Dragons, you have a pre-made campaign or a pre-made idea or just a, you know, you instead of having point A and then here's the very end, you know, Paul Patine gets chucked down a laundry chute in a Dungeons and Dragons. You know, you have Empire Strikes Back, Jabba's Palace, and all this. Whereas in Dungeon World, it's just maybe right. you'll get over here to the end. So, using that hor horribly nerdy analogy for you, was it different or even difficult or more challenging to do a documentary? Kind of, sort of, that you don't really know the ending. You were just like, hey, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I hope we get a good ending. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. I'm notorious for having pretty ambiguous endings. You know, <laughs> I, I I I personally like when films sort of don't spell it out for you at the very end, and you're kind of like have to kind of think on your own. Once you finish like, yeah. the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but with Skyman, you know, it was it was it was pretty pretty tightly scripted. I mean, we you know. I had the luxury of being able to workshop it with the actors, both Nicolette and Michael ahead of time. And we were able to really dial in the characters. And, and once we got on set, we could really sort of rock and roll through it. And um, so we had to be pretty efficient with our shooting, but, but the tricky thing for me is the hardest thing I think for me was in the early days, I wasn't sure exactly how I wanted to tell it. Like, would it be a found footage film? Would it be a, straight up narrative like the objective was or would it be some hybrid in between and i literally wrote three versions of the script i wrote one that was a straight up found footage like if you found all of carl's videotapes this is the movie right mm -hmm. and then there was the straight up narrative which would have been the five million dollar version right with the alien at the end and whatnot and then there was the one i landed on which was a documentary but told from my perspective and so it gave me sort of this creative license to sort of embellish at times and have drone shots when I needed and you know what documentarians do they you're seeing a story about somebody but it's still told through their perspective right so um, so I thought that was kind of a unique hybrid but I was afraid that it would be compared too much to Blair always oh, trying to do Blair again da, 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 da. and there's always those people saying that but I I'm pleased to see that most of the reviews have been very positive. I mean, we had great reviews in New York Times and Austin Chronicle and, and Film Threat and those kinds of places. So we've had really good favorable reviews. And quite frankly, it was like very little comparison to Blair Rich on, on a lot of it. It was 
here's the Blair guy doing another found footage film, but but the movie has been standing on its own two feet pretty much. So because it's obviously not trying to do another found footage scary movie, of right? So of course. Um, so, but that was the toughest thing for me was like trying to thread that needle um, and still tell the story that that the that the script is wanting for me to tell. So. So, you know, but that's just the Blair baggage I take with every movie I do. I was going to ask <laughs> There's no that. way around it. <laughs> you could be, I mean, you could, you could tell me to F off for all I care, but it was, <laughs> but has it been difficult? You know, like you said, you said yourself, hey, you're, you're the Blair guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, has, have you had to contend with that all yeah. ever since that film? Or has it just been, has it been a blessing or a curse? I guess I should say a boon or a bane for you in that, you know, yeah, I did Blair Witch. Check what I got. Well, there's well, no invisible witch, so why do we want to make it? You know, it just, right. but you're, you are the icon of guerrilla filmmaking. Like you and that dude that did Basket Case. What was it, Lustig? That guy? What, you know, just grab a camera, go out and film a movie. You, right. Yeah, I can't nice. imagine anything really keeping you from making your idea. You've proven that. But I was just kind of curious if you had to live under the shadow of Blair Witch or has it helped you or hurt you? I mean, there's definitely been more upside than downside. Mm-hmm. By, by far. I mean, the, the, the Blair Witch experience, the Blair Witch, you know, independent film as a, as a standalone case study is like every indie filmmaker's dream come true. It was just <laughs> yep. off the charts in every way imaginable. I mean, even we were standing back just like couldn't believe how crazy things got. So no complaints from me, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll never find me griping too much about my experience with Blair Witch. However, the downside is, is that you are sort of defined by that, <laughs> that movie, right? I mean, that's, you know, it's like you, you make the game winning catch in the Super Bowl and that's your one highlight reel, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you, 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 but, but you got to make the catch, right? Yeah. So you can't right. complain too much, but, um, but it has afforded me a lot of opportunities. It's afforded me a lot of opportunities to sort of like, um, you know, get into get it opens the door for you to make pitches where you otherwise wouldn't be able to make a pitch, right? But then it's up yeah. to you to pitch, right? And so I've been fortunate to be able to continue making movies, um, and I think Skyman's the latest, um, and I've been lucky for most of those films to be able to make them on my own terms um, with the crew that I want to work with. I, I don't. Um, I dabbled a little bit in the Hollywood. Sp- system for a while wasn't really my cup of tea i'd rather go out and do these little movies because um, i'm the happiest yeah. when i'm keep, doing that please keep going this is yeah. what i was waiting on so i'm i'm um i just burped so excuse me but um but for me i'm my temperament doesn't really it's not that i'm not a collaborative guy i love cl- collaborating but with people i trust to collaborate with i can't collaborate with a bunch of strangers in a boardroom i've never met before I mean, I've been forced to, and it's not that I can't, but I just enjoy my life day to day much more when I'm out there scrapping it out with 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 people I really love and adore that are around me, and and that's the most rewarding. I mean, Skyman was one of those films that we all got to be at summer camp for freaking three months and make a movie together. It was just awesome, and it shows on the screen that intimacy, that sincerity. I think shows in the end product and and you're never at your best unless you're doing what you love and that's right. what Blair has been enabled me to do and and that's why I really consider myself lucky that I get to get up in the morning and make make goofy movies and that's yeah. all I wanted to do back back in college was was 
was, you know, I raised my hand when they asked who wanted to be a director. I'm like, me. So, you know, <laughs> I still get to do it. I can't, I can't complain. See that, and this is, this is the avenue I was hoping it would go down because especially mm -hmm. whatever you said, you know, you're not much for the, the Hollywood corporate stuff. And I'm, they, I may speak for all of us, but I'm certainly speaking for two of us on here that, I mean, just thrive in the independent scene and the more I hang around it, just you more than many other people have inspired so much of what I do. That's what I wanted to get it. So like when you- Yeah, just, and, I, and I have nothing against big Hollywood movies. I grew up yeah. on them. They're great yeah. and they're fun to go to. Close Encounters inspired me to be a filmmaker. So right. I'm, you know, big, big spectacle films. In the right hands, they're amazing, right? right. Um, but- but <laughs> There it is. But yeah, I mean, but with that kind of money and that kind of risk at stake, you very rarely, unless you're a Spielberg or a Kubrick or something, you very rarely have the creative control that you got into the business in the first place is to, is to, is to have a voice and to tell your stories and, and all that gets sapped out of you when you have that much risk and money at stake. So, so you know, somebody keep, keep him talking, Mr. Myrick, if you would, humor me first of all i just if you'd have told me whenever the hell 20 years ago after watching blair witch on we were with my buddy we were in a thrash metal band so we had just got finished ripping a freaking massive set it was freaking cool and we go and rent a couple of movies and stuff and blair witch had just hit and we we hooked everything up into our pa system and stuff and we're out in the barn oh, cool. in the upper loft so it's cold as shit yeah. And we had the loudspeakers hooked up so much that my buddy that lived three streets over could hear, <laughs> he could hear us because we were up <laughs> on a hill and stuff. But yes, awesome. we're watching Blair Witch just scared the shit out of me. However, my son, it, like Blair Witch is one of his favorite movies and he's a filmmaker. So right. before we wrap, would you mind like telling him? what to do to make his movie. I'll just throw that in you. I mean, I know it's like, cause I get all kinds of answers all the time. Well, you go and you find your venture capitalist and you make sure you got your line stuff like this. I mean, I get it. But before this is all said and done, would mean, would you mind? I cause know. I told him, I told him we were doing one. I was like, dude, you like Blair Witch, man. I mean, you could, I tried to get him to sit in on this instead of me. And he was like, I don't know, but you, know, <laughs> you wouldn't mind. I mean, I'm not totally not derailing this podcast, even though I think I just did it. I didn't mean to, but I want to do it before I stop because it's like, sure, man. Yeah, Dan Byron can get my son to talk. To anyway, <laughs> on with the show. All right. I got some. All right, Dan. So, um, one of the you mentioned the importance of characters and the original cast of Blair Witch, uh, Heather, Josh, and Mike. They commend you and Ed a lot on giving them so much freedom to find their characters and to make up their own storyline. Essentially, uh, it, do you attribute that to a lot of the success of Blair Witch is just letting them do their thing? Well, yeah, I think especially if you're trying to do uh, a documentary style film that 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 you're intending to feel real and improvised, um, that you have to sort of avoid um, a lot of the typical directorial control that you impose on a film process, right? So, but you still have to tell a narrative story, right? So you have to figure out a way to keep the actors on track, adjust their performances, but without it feeling like you're doing that, right? So they, so you wanna give them the freedom to roam within the character, within the scene and get to the point of each scene but also keep that narrative rope tight through that whole, that whole structure. And a lot of it happens in the edit, 
this is the what a lot of people don't realize if you shoot this style of film this sort of found footage or documentary style film you, you end up shooting a lot of content on scene it's really easy to shoot on scene because you've got minimal characters and minimal crew but you're shooting all these different angles and whatnot and it's in the edit primarily where you're really finding the moments and you're fine much like a normal documentary you're finding all those 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 authentic moments that the actors found through improvisation on set so actors typically love working like that they love having that sort of freedom that kind of next level character exploration that a that a script where they're having to read every line verbatim doesn't allow for and some actors are uncomfortable with that kind of openness they want they like to be you know they're handheld through a process or what have you but um, but when actors are given that sort of freedom, I invariably find in almost every scene we shoot something I hadn't written. There'll be some moment or some line or some reaction that, that no one could have anticipated that you capture. And it's that, those little magical moments that the stage that you've set allows for that I so love in this process. I really, really is, is this is why I love shooting this sort of kind of guerrilla indie kind of quasi method in what way because it, it it gives you those so many of those kinds of moments um it's like playing music man it's like jamming with your buddies in a in a, in a garage and you may have an idea or, or a vibe of what you want to play and all but you start you just start going and suddenly you hit a melody that's that rocks and you write it down and and there's no way you could have written that in your head prior to going starting up right so that that collaboration is just I wish everyone could feel that. It's just such a magical thing when you're with the right people. How much of the narrative in the Blair Witch, you just mentioned like how it, they, things pop up in the dialogue that you never would have thought of. How much of that occurred in the original Blair Witch as far well, as the most, lore building and stuff that y'all were doing, things like that? Yeah, well, the, the, the actual storyline and of course the characters and the lore building were all pretty much premeditated. We, you know, even the where they were walking in the woods and the campsites all had to be sort of mapped out and all. So we basically had everything pretty well organized um, for the entire film, except the dialogue, right? We wanted <laughs> them to be able to create their own dialogue. There were moments where we needed, like Heather to say something specific, but, but for the most part, it was um, informing their characters. We had director notes, um, you know, along the path, they were instructed, they got to a, a certain checkpoint, they'd open up their individual director notes, and this would be an example where Heather would get a note that would say to her, you have to keep walking south all day, you know you will find the car, just don't take no for an answer. And then Josh would get a directing note and say, all right, you can humor Heather for a while, but sometime this afternoon, fucking take control, dude. But they didn't know each other's notes. <laughs> right so they were instructed to do them, their thing individually they were they had the directing kind of mandates but we left it up to them about what time in the day that they would have that confrontation right and and um so that was sort of our way of like being able to control the process but allow them the freedom when when those moments would happen so i took a little bit of that sort of method approach and applied it to Skyman as well, allowing the actors Ooh. a lot of freedom to explore. Um, but most, but it was much more scripted in Skyman than it was in Blair because it was, Blair was by design to be a found footage film where right. uh, it's just the raw tapes that you see where 
I'm obviously a character in my own movie. I'm the documentarian asking questions off camera. So, so I had more control over that process on Skyman. But um, so again, it's just how the film dictates how it should be shot. But, uh, but yeah, there's still a lot, a lot of overlap with all the things I've learned on, on every movie I've done. It's you never stop learning. I took cues from that, from the Blair Witch. I did an album a couple years ago where I created, basically I created, not really a Blair, I created my own terrible old man, if you will, in the house on the hill. And it's just cool hearing what you did with Blair Witch because that's how I coached. Angelique with us now, she was in that one. And oh, that's cool. kind of what I did. Some of them, it would, I would give them, some would have a longer script, but then right. some of them, we, it was like a radio show. So right. it, and since we're all podcasters, a lot, we were all familiar with each other. So that's why I got people from the same group to play off of each other. But yeah, I didn't give them a script. I just gave them bullet points. And I said, yeah. old guy, and this is what he said to do. And this was a rumor, but you don't know this rumor. The other guy knows this rumor. And that's what I had him do. It just, that makes me feel cool that, that happened with Blair Witch because yeah, you talk about that. It's, it feels so cool when it because I was like, hey, "Ain't no way this shit gonna work." <laughs> but then when it does, it's like it worked, and then you're like, it works great. Oh, yeah, of I course mean, it worked. I meant to do that. Great organic, just it's fresh. It's fresh because you never know exactly what somebody's gonna say. You know, you have got the general premise, but right. when they pop off with something brilliant, it's just like that's, yeah. yeah. That's why it's so <laughs> crucial to to really uh put your energies into casting you know you you gotta find the right actors that are really smart really capable and you know improvisational skills is a whole different muscle than normal acting and and so you need people that are very authentic and very uh comfortable with thinking on their feet and not overdoing it and not overacting and not trying to steal the scene at every moment so they have to have this sort of subtle confidence in, in, in how they act and play those characters just right. So it's a whole different skill set and you got to find the right actors for that kind of approach. And that's, um, can, can be difficult, but I've always been, you know, to me getting back to Hitchcock, I think he said like 90% of a director's job is in the casting. So you get good actors and you just kind of sit back and just steer them a little bit, but let them do their job. Mm-hmm. With Blair, you had this fantastic mix of, new tech and old tech especially with the marketing i mean the internet was a baby and you destroyed it (laughs) i I burned through so many aol cds going to that site (laughs) (laughs) have they they found any more clues i gotta see (laughs) so with that and and starman you know it's it's totally completely different however you know, with Blair, you harness that fear of nature, the fear of the woods and the wood to the wood, you know, the old Hansel and Gretel time immemorial fear. You're yeah. lost and something's chasing you. Well, then here you've got uh, Skyman with something that absolutely terrifies me. The, the idea of being abducted by aliens. Right. One of my biggest irrational fears, you know, between that and the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> I will never go anywhere near the Bermuda Triangle, but knowing that it exists, sometimes I can't sleep. You know? <laughs> but, um, with that, you've got all this, your grasp of, of tech and, and detection, you know, with all the magnets and everything, you know, you really nailed your research. Um, 
with all this new tech coming about, you know, you've got Xbox and all these new phones and you make new so and back the board thing, but now you have this whole new realm of tech to explore. Yeah. That's I mean, there's so much about <laughs> technology in everything I do. There's 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 always some element of that involved, I think, because um and you have to consider it when as a filmmaker, you have to consider the technology like like my kids growing up, it's like they're not, they're growing up in a world where the, the, every, there was always cell phones around, mm-hmm. right? And I tried to explain to them on Blair Witch, like, well, there was, you know, there were times where cell phones were, we didn't have cell phones, you know, <laughs> that just wasn't common. What? You, could, you can't call for help, right? Uh-huh. Um, so, but as writers, the cell phones become more and more pre- prevalent. Now you got to figure out how, how do we, how do we get the cell phone out of the picture? Because <laughs> right. otherwise our protagonist is just going to call for help. Right. So mm-hmm. you have to factor all that in. Right. And, um, but, but yeah, when, when I mean, Skyman definitely plays in a lot of those themes as well. I think what I like to, what I like about Carl's character is that he's very knowledgeable. He's very, he's very good at fixing things. He's, he's, he's really intelligent in certain ways. Um, embraces technology, you know, he's obviously thought through magnetism and theory of relativity and how that could be serve as a beacon to attract aliens and whatnot. So he's really kind of done his homework in that regard. Um, and, and to me, part of the technology, I think, informs some level of credibility for the film. Like people say, oh, this, this might work. What Carl's doing might actually, I can kind of see the logic behind why he's doing it, because technologically speaking, that kind of makes sense. So I like to, I like to, to, to bring that component to a lot of my film, that there's a technical aspect to it that, that sort of makes logical sense. And it's not just all about, you know, spirituality or magical this or that. There is some science underneath, underpinning what he's doing. Because that's when I, I'm most intrigued, when I see, like this most recent UFO um, in the Air Force, the, the famous Tic Tac Air, you know, um, yeah. right. sighting. You know, it's on a FLIR camera, and you hear the guys off camera talking about it. They're witnessing it right there. It's like, how do you fake this, right? I mean, it's it's right there. Something obviously is going on, and these guys <laughs> are reacting to it. And it's just, they're in the, probably one of the most sophisticated surveillance, you know, platforms in the world, right? There it is, right there on camera, and and they're trying to figure it out what what the heck's going on, right? So that technology, I think, makes it all the scarier and all the more freaky, right? Because it's it's right there in front of your eyes, and the technology is it's not lying; it's it's <laughs> there. So um, so yeah, I, I think it has a big component to a lot of my work as well, and and um, that that makes it more convincing, I think, in my opinion. Certainly. There's your Lovecraftian angle, the insignificance. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you're faced with something like that, that you had no idea it could be, and yet there it is. So there, there you go, kids, wherever y'all are at. There's your Lovecraftian <laughs> reference for the evening. There it is. Yeah. Bartenders and waitresses. Ding, <laughs> ding. <laughs> it's never a complete day until you reference Lovecraft. So. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. The music in Skyman is really disjointed and it kind of plays with you a little bit um, because you're watching Carl and you know, the whole time trying to figure out, okay, is he just, is, is there a mental thing going on or 
is right. he really, you know, trying to resolve some kind of trauma or, or in, and get some resolution from this incident that, that happened to him as a child? Um, what led you to those kind of uh, musical choices? Well, I, I think for me, I wanted a score that was not your typical like, woo, 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 you know, like UFO. A lot of theremin <laughs> and everything. Like yeah, that. yeah. I mean, I thought about the theremin for a little while, but but I, I wanted to be more of a character-driven score rather than a spooky UFO kind of driven score, some kind of blend. And um, and Don Miggs, our composer, um, was was and is friends with Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. So Billy contributed some music for us and apparently he's a big UFO guy. And so so Don and Billy and their and their collaboration with Greg Hansen all jumped in and kind of made this really cool score. And and my my direction for them was, you know, kind of resist the urge to just make it spooky and and you know otherworldly. We want elements of that in there but at the same time Carl is a simple guy in a simple world um, and there needs to be some sort of organic um, vibe about him that the music reflects that is that is it's more than just a, a a spooky narrative underpinning it there's a character here and the music needs to reflect that as well in his situation and they totally got it so at, at moments there's a spooky vibe to the film and then there's other moments where it's very sincere family kind of dynamic going on as well that they i thought they struck a really good balance with that right so uh dan back um during the blair witch days when you have the when it hits and you've got the tidal wave coming in you got the pr campaign rolling when you guys aren't doing the interviews and such what are you and ed behind closed doors what are you feeling what are you guys saying to each other like holy shit what's what is what's going on <laughs> yeah certainly in the early days we were we were like you know like deer caught in headlights it was it was we i i mean sundance was was amazing and magical and you know it was really a crazy crazy time for us i mean it was funny like mike mike williams who played the sound guy in the film he and i think heather they got there a couple of days later and we had already sold the movie and things were starting to really kind of within the sundance bubble was really we were really kind of the hot flavor of the week and um so when when whenever you sell your movie you know you get a lot of people wanting to do interviews and whatnot so mike williams he came in from Jersey and he and Heather kind of drove up in a van. They dropped him off in the middle of Park City. And the minute he walks out of the van, he says, hey, man, what's up? He just thought it was like nothing was going on. And he gets yanked into a, like a photo shoot at Premier Magazine. He's like, what the hell am I doing? You know, he was completely <laughs> thrown away. And um, so a lot of that was going on. And then I think where it really sort of got surreal for Ed and I was in, was in France when we were in Cannes. Like the first couple of days we were there, they asked us to do a panel with Ron Howard and Spike Lee and John Sale, and, and, and it was Ed and I. <laughs> and we're like, what the hell are we doing on this panel? And that was just, we didn't say much. We were smart to just keep our mouth shut. But just being in the south of France on a panel with those guys was just like, we were no longer in Kansas anymore. We were We were just sort of, along for the ride but it was a great ride i mean it was a, it was a, it was i mean there were so many amazing moments so many epic things that happened during that process that that 
I'll always be happy that I was a part of. It was really um, quite astounding. I mean, by any measure, by any film, I mean, when I got back to Orlando and we finally broke out into the multiplexes, we went, you know, from like the indie, like the Angelica and those kind of indie platform movies. My wife and I, my girlfriend at the time, but my wife now, we went to the movie co like 24 theater movieplex in Orlando where we always would go see movies. And we went there and Blair was on five screens. You know, I took a picture of it. I mean, Star <laughs> Wars was on one, and, no, on two. And we were on five. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And it was just <laughs> off the charts. It was just like nothing ever before or since. It was just incredible. And to be a part of it was at once astounding and um, surreal and amazing and um, and and another time really scary because we did we had no idea what we were going to do from that <laughs> to, to, as a follow-up so but you know good problem to have trust me <laughs> well talking of the uh, legacy that Blair Witch has I'm curious you mentioned quarantine earlier what are your favorite films that Blair Witch has inspired well, I actually like Cloverfield a lot. I thought Cloverfield was cool. Um, I, I like uh, um, Paranormal Activity. I, I went and saw, the, the, as you probably would guess, hey, we need to play which guy to come see this, our screening of Cloverfield, or of, of, of uh, Paranormal. So I got to meet Oren Pelly, the director there, super nice guy. And um, I guess they wanted just to kind of know what I thought about it or whatever. It was at the Paramount backlot. They were still deciding on whether or not they should remake it and do a regular movie or not. So I watched it and thought it was, I was really impressed with it. And, um, and I try to remind my, a lot of my filmmaker friends, especially those that I went to film school with, like, you know, how many movies do you know are shot in someone's apartment that you've seen a million times over? But are actually interesting. <laughs> and Oren, Oren pulled it off. <laughs> so I think um, um, yeah, those are a couple of notable films, I think, that took the genre, the found footage genre, and did a pretty good, some pretty cool stuff with it. Um, so yeah, every now and then someone comes along and does a really good job and takes takes the that style of filmmaking and and uh, has fun with it. And um, but there are a lot of bad examples out there there's no doubt about it just like there's a lot of bad examples of everything but but every now and then someone nails it and it's, and it's fun to see when it happens yeah like inspired everything since that movie came out it's always been like the top five of my favorite horror films cool. yeah <laughs> just the fact that how does that feel to know that like you are responsible for kicking off whether people say it inspired it or not it did you caught lightning in a bottle because what you did with the Blair Witch, as Angelique said, with the marketing, the viral campaign, we didn't even know that term at the time. And that will never happen again. Not for another two or three generations and an, an epoch and a new age so that everyone forgets that what happened. But, I mean, how does that feel to just know it's like, you know, we started that? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because it's, in one sense, it's very rewarding. Like when young filmmakers come up and say, hey, I'm making movies now because I saw Blair Witch. I'm like, that's awesome. It makes me feel so good to know that there may be filmmakers out there way more talented than I am that are going to change the world. And they were inspired by something I did, right? That's so rewarding as an artist. And, and so I love hearing that. I love hearing stories about young filmmakers that are that have been inspired by 
that you know work that I may have helped influence them to do to be a filmmaker. So that's that's really cool. And you know, it's it is um, humbling at the same time. You're like you're you're you know I'm getting older. There's no there's no two ways about it. And, and there's just certain things that my cultural references are different than young kids today. That my I've got a you know 14 soon to be 15 year old son and 11 year old daughter that are growing up in an entirely different world of technology and and comfort level with that technology than I ever did, right? Mm-hmm. So they're doing stuff online, um, getting their, consuming their content in, in a way that's really almost alien to me, right? And so someone's going to come along and take that and make the new Blair out of that, that recipe of stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, which is exciting because there's right. always room for another Blair in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so that's um, it's cool to see that process. It's it's cool to it's cool to be a part of that legacy, um, and and to watch it happen again. And hopefully, I mean, you know, when you think about technology, you know, Amazon didn't exist when Blair Witch was around. It's kind right. of hard to imagine that a guy worth 180 or 60 billion or whatever right now, he was working out of his garage back when Blair was being made. Right. Mm -hmm. So the scope of what can happen in today's day and age, the the technology is just kind of, it's boundless. Um, And it is for, for filmmakers. I mean, you know, guys like you, your podcast can be seen all over the world. You know, and when I was going to film school, if you didn't ship your, stupid little student film didn't get seen at the end of the year at the, at the you know at the film school symposium that was it it never got no one ever saw it again it sat on your shelf <laughs> well now man you put it up on youtube it could go all over the world so it's it's really um it's an amazing time to be a filmmaker both both in terms of distribution as well as you know the acquisition the cameras that you have available now the edit systems you have available now the stuff that you guys can do on zoom and all it's just just blows my mind the thing that fascinates my son, because I remember I showed him Blair Witch for the first time the year before. Like every every October, I'd spend at least every, once a weekend. And we just watched the movies that I, it's not any kind of arbitrary sense. Like I am the gatekeeper of what's cool, even though I am because I'm his dad. But, we, <laughs> you know, just want to show him like the cream of the crop, the best of the right. best. You know, yeah. so we've seen The Fog. We've seen In the Mouth of Madness. And I let him watch Aliens when he was six. So it scared the shit out of him. But uh, <laughs> we watched Blair Witch a couple years ago. And he is fascinated. He loves it because, yeah, it's, it's incredible to make a movie where nothing happens. And it is so terrifying. Right. And he's, but he also likes the up and endings just with him talking about, because I remember him explaining, he's honestly, he likes that documentary featurette, which remember me telling you before about the audio drama I made with my friends. It's okay. Like my son is that documentary probably inspired me more than the movie ever did because it follows the same thing as a horror film. If you don't see it, it is, so much scarier it is more terrifying jaws was terrifying and you only see the shark for one third of the film most of the time most of the time it's the music that is the character of the shark you don't even see the shark and it's absolutely terrifying yeah and audio drama builds like that and that was my aspect with the blair witch and the world building was that how y'all made that documentary that is carrying over to my son's generation and i'll give you a perfect example of this 
there's a game, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there was a game that came out, God, uh, 10 years ago. It's going on 10 years called Five Nights at Freddy's. It's absolutely wonderful game. Think It's showbiz pizza from hell. And that was the cool thing about it is that I didn't really know the story of the game other than the fact that there were these evil animatronic creatures. You're, you're a, a night watchman in a pizza place. Well, the pizza place is owned right. by Freddie Fazbear. Uh, I think I heard about that. Yeah, and yeah. He, he owns a pizza place, and you're in yeah. charge of security cameras. They're so just like Blair Witch, yeah. your only interaction with that game is you can look in your office or you have to look in the security camera monitors. And right. you'll look at one, and the, and the little the stuffed creature, like the animatronic, will be looking at you from the corner. Well, you'll look at another screen. When you come out of that screen, he might be closer or he might be gone altogether. It was right. absolutely wonderful. But is I'm not rambling. My point is, is that that game, because I heard my son sitting there playing with his friends, they were reading web pages and forum boards about yeah. the stories, like building their own lore right. and everything. And I mean, again, y'all kind of started that when you made the documentary about a Blair Witch that wasn't real. But right. damn, if you didn't make that documentary look real. And that, to me, was the scariest part about, about the Blair Witch, was building up the tension and the excitement to where in a stroke of brilliance, you could literally make a 95-minute movie and nothing needs to happen except for the last five minutes. And it was absolutely brilliant. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, all, you know, it's all about laying the, laying the, the pipe for, for, for tension, right? And it's, you know, there's... You know, if you look at the original script, it was it was a highly structured kind of pacing of the movie and all the beats that we needed to hit and all the slow build. Each night had to be a little bit more build than the one before. And so there was, it was a very methodical approach we took to kind of structuring the story and and, um, you know, to, to make it look like there was no structure. And and so that's those rules will always apply. I mean, you know, I, I try to tell people as different as Blair Witch feels, we still knew the rules that we were breaking. It's like any good musician um, that's riffing or improvising, they usually know their scales really well. <laughs> I mean, these guys are these they you got to kind of know the basics before you can really kind of deviate from them in the right way that that works. And so that's what Blair was for us. And, and I still to this day like to play around with the genre and play around with, with, with the whole medium in that way. And, um, but, you know, at the same time, we were living in a world that I think audiences were just more accepting of that kind of storytelling. I think, mm -hmm. you know, with the internet and 24 seven news, and we were all starting to get cell phones and whatnot, everybody was just, and especially today, I mean, it's just how do you not tell a story in that kind of format, right? right. It's just everybody's so accepting of that of that kind of style of, of filmmaking, and I just think it really works well in horror. There's just something disarming about seeing stuff that looks like it's shot on a security camera or a handheld video. It just feels very improvised. And when you, as a viewer, when you see something that feels improvised, there's no longer any safety net there that you get in a normal narrative film. There's no you're not quite sure what's going to happen next, mm -hmm. which is what I love. Like one of my things I love about J horror is, is, mm -hmm. is that, you know, it's a, it's a completely different genre of film. I mean, it's horror, but it's its own genre because it's all different cultural references. You, you see, you see 
the horror told it from a different mm -hmm. perspective and you're not and so as an american you're like you're suddenly off kilter you don't know how this character is going to roll out for you because you're so used to seeing it the way americans do it and that's really scary man and i think this improvisational approach sort of taps into that that sort of unknowing what's going to happen next leaving it more to the imagination and allowing the audience to do most of the work for you you know you're right about the cultural differences i told my son it's like you want a good it's it's not that it's bad it's just different but i told him if you want a good idea like writing cues and stuff you need to read some of those british novels man then people yeah. they will get you invested in a character and kill that some bitch in like eight minutes in They'll kill them off like, it's what? like I, know, I made this reference the other day. It was like Steven Seagal, an executive decision. We're yeah. going in. We're kicking ass. We are doing this. We are ready. Nine minutes and 48 seconds. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Steven Seagal ain't in this movie now, huh? It just, yes, I would tell my son to maybe watch some flicks like that. Or, yeah, J-Horror. Because if you're not prepared for it, them little pale pasty kids with the oily black hair will <laughs> terrify you they will, yeah when i saw the first original version of the ring uh, <laughs> like yeah. one of the scariest films of all time man <laughs> what the heck is going on here and and yeah that's 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 one of those treats it's one of those moments where you're just like you'll never have it again it was just a seminal moment and for for horror for me it was like up there with the exorcist and the Shining and mm -hmm. Jacob's Ladder and those kinds of movies. You're like, geez, man, it's just so well done and so well crafted and um, and so original. And and that's I love it. I mean, I love it when a movie does that to me. You said it was Jaws. Which one? What movie like terrified? I mean, which Jaws one? was definitely one of them. That I, mean, the I, was that, I was at right age, you know, and yeah. and I lived in Florida, you know. Oh, ten, yeah, that's right. Ten, ten steps from the beach. So. Oh, man, I bet that thing messed you up good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, um, that was a big one. That was, that was one of the best. I mean, when you go back and look at Jaws, you look at how well scripted it is, what a beautifully written script that is. Um, and so well crafted. It's just amazing. All the beats are there and the characters and, um, you know, in its typical Spielbergian way. But, it, you know, and there were a lot of happy accidents, as you mentioned, you know, with the, with the shark knock working and stuff like that, forcing them to kind of improvise. But, um, but man, I mean, a big, a big budget film like that in the hands of a master is really, it's, a, it's just a, it's a joy to, to behold. And that, that one really kicked me in the in the you know where when at the right age of my life to see jaws and that's I can see a lot of it has to do with that i mean you're at the right time in your life right. to see mm -hmm. something like that it has a huge impact on you and that's um exactly that, yeah i could see that yeah i mean the big blockbuster film of what they spend the time whenever the guys give it the flashbacks when they're flirting in the water in the war and stuff it's like not even showing anything not you know it's a movie and you're supposed to show don't tell and what's spielberg doing telling you and yeah. yet, it's one of the. It's probably the most compelling scene. Yeah. Well, that and the, when dude gets eaten by a shark. But I mean, that's kind of notwithstanding. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's um, and I thought Richard Dreyfuss's performance was amazing throughout. And mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was just a well-crafted film and and a well-scripted film. It was again, the best horror for me are are just great films that happen mm -hmm. to be horror movies. Right, they're just really well written, really well cast, really well directed. Performances are amazing, 
and um, and the stories are just awesome stories. So that's yeah. that's um, those are the kinds of things I like. And and you know whether it's comedy or drama or horror, I just like a well a well crafted film. Got any uh now? I mean, I ain't even rushing the gun. Nothing. Maybe you could just a little tidbit. But you know, we've done Skyman, and it's not horror. This is a character exposition, if you will. We're studying the human condition. Have you had any inclinations to revisit the horror, only maybe with some extraterrestrials this time? I'm thinking about. Maybe. I've got a. I've, I've got a one script that's sort of in that in that space that I've been writing, and uh-huh. uh, and I've got another script. Well, I shouldn't say that's premature. I've got another idea, concept that I'm thinking about working on that takes place in the Everglades. Ah, <laughs> okay, interested. That is, um, it, it's it's going to be my first attempt at action horror. Ooh. So, <laughs> and right now is it's the, the working title. This is the first time I'm telling anybody the working title is just called "Run Like Hell," and that's I like it. I love it already. <laughs> I'm there. Like it. <laughs> Run like hell, and um, so yeah, I'm I'm working on that now, and and um, and hopefully once the flipping pandemic and all that stuff is out of our way and kind of a distant memory hopefully sooner rather than later we can get back to got to get back to working on that we are doing we were doing a a a series called black veil in florida we shot the pilot episode for it we had six more that we were going to shoot but until the pandemic hit but um so i was editing that um last month and so we want to get that back going again um what's that about it's basically it's a it's a short form uh, anthology horror anthology that all centers around like southern gothic horror. God yes, uh-huh. oh, man. hell yes, that's, that's our business right there. Yeah, that's where we live. <laughs> so it's like nobody's really dived into southern gothic horror really. You know, God knows I'm working on a serialized audio drama focused on that same aspect, man. That yeah, is badass, so- dude. So if you go to blackveilonline.com, you can kind of get an idea of the vibe. And, and uh, it, is, um, it is six 15, 20-minute shorts. We've got Jeffrey Reddick on board, who did Final Destination. We've got Danny McBride, who did Underworld, who's going to do an episode for us. Um, Tom McLaughlin, who did one of the... Uh, um, yeah. Uh, Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. He's it's coming on in a couple weeks. Um, so we've got some really good kind of horror, you know, stalwarts in the space to do episodes for us. We've got these really cool episodes, but they're all housed within that Southern Gothic vibe. And um, so we're really excited about that. And, and like I said, I, I wrote, or I directed the first episode. It was written by a friend of mine named Chris Pickenball. So that's done. <clears throat> and so now we're just waiting to get back into production again so we can finish out the series. And uh, so so we have a lot going on on paper. <laughs> and once we can get back on the cameras again, I can, you know, I can uh, get out of my off my home office here. Get I back am to work. all over that. That is yeah. on my watch list. Notifications. We'll have to everything. chat again about that. Uh, yeah, absolutely, guys. Yeah, that is, that is. Yeah, that made my night. Hell yeah, I cannot wait for that. Give me something to look forward to. Very cool. Well, well, I gotta get going here in a minute. My wife's at, call me for dinner. So, dude, I'm yeah. We are keeping you way too long. Could you? Would you humor me real quick? Can I grab sure. my son for just a second? Absolutely. I What's thank you so much. His name is Jonathan. Everybody calls right. him Johnny. Hold on. All right. 
Bring them on. <laughs> this is going to be so cool. <laughs> While we're waiting for Daniel, I feel like I would be remiss. Uh, you said you were a fan of J-Horror. Are you familiar with the movies of uh, Koji Shiraishi? Koji Shiraishi, no. Oh, he did a movie that was very inspired by your work called Naroi the Curse. I think you'd really enjoy Ooh, that. Man. Yes, that is That's a such a good one. That, I love that movie. It's one of my favorite found footage horror movies. Another movie he did was called Cult. It was great. Yeah, I heard about yeah. Cult. Um, it's one of the best. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they are... Hello? Hello, Johnny? Yeah, I'm right How's here. How's it going, man? It's doing, I'm just doing all right. Um, I don't really have that much to say. Um, what I really would like to say, though, is that your movie really had an impact on me, and unfortunately... I don't think my generation will ever have an experience close to the Blair Witch Project, and it's really unfortunate because of the internet and because of how how everyone knows everything is fake. Like, sure, they might not know it, like, truly, but they know deep down, they automatically assume that everything is fake. They'll never be able to experience a phenomenon like the Blair Witch with the documentary, with the website, with everything that you and your production did as far as marketing and as far as how you made it this whole phenomenon. I don't think that'll ever happen again. We'll get things closed, like Slenderman or whatever else, whatever's here, Siren Head or whatever's going on now. Right, right. Um, we'll get stuff close to that, but we'll never have another Blair Witch. There will never be anything else like it. There will never be a true phenomenon of people being suckered into believing something is so real. So I really admire that about your film, and I really admire how you're able to craft not just – I admire the movie, but I also really admire the documentary when I saw it because it, it blew me away mm -hmm. how truly just immersive it was into this world um, and how you created the Blair Witch, not just in a movie sense, but in a spiritual phenomenon sense. Well, I and appreciate that. The only question I really have um, as far as like how you made the movie is what software did you use? Um, you mean as far as editing? Yeah, as far as editing, what software did you use? Uh, we we basically used three different kinds. We were so broke, we just got what we could get our hands on. But like, we started editing it on um, Media 100, which is like, you know, old school nonlinear edit system. And then we migrated it to uh, Avid. And we did most of the cut on Avid and then ended up on Premiere for some reason. I think we had our final output on Premiere. So we did it like on three different platforms and most of our, you know, what little effects that we had in the movie, we did some on After Effects and stuff like that. But um, but the core editing was done on, on, on an Avid back in those days. Okay. That's honestly about all I have to say. Um, your movie, again, had a profound impact on me. Um, and I really... It's again, it's really unfortunate that my generation will never be able to experience your movie, and I even I haven't, I wasn't around then. Um, so I guess I can only go back and look at what it once was, you know. What the well, look, was. I mean, I'm you know, I always say never say never because part of I think you're absolutely right when it comes to Blair Witch or a movie like Blair Witch, you know, fooling so many people. Um, you know, in, in a broad sense like that, it's probably right. impossible now. I think you're right. Everyone's so connected. And I just think like my 15 year old kid today is so much more savvy about 
stuff going on online than I ever was at, the, at that age. And mm-hmm. so they're just so much more kind of dialed in. But, you know, art is art. Art forms are art forms. You guys are going to have your own version of a Blair Witch. And it may mm-hmm. not be something that fools everybody into thinking something that's real, but it'll be its own phenomena in its own way. Because I'll guarantee you, there were a lot of dudes back in my day said that there would never be another X, Y, or Z, and then Blair came out. Well, I got told <laughs> constantly from studio types, so it'll never be this, it'll never be that. And then we just, everything was rewritten. All the rules were rewritten. So just when you think you know the rules, someone comes along and rewrites them. And that's really... Hold out that one little hope that you could be the next guy or someone you know could rewrite all the rules and all your reference points have been moved and shifted around. Okay. So um, so that's what a great album does when it comes out or a musician that nobody, everyone thinks they all know the kind of music that's coming out and someone comes out of left field, you go, damn, it's a completely different sound. Mm-hmm. And filmmaking's the same way. So. I still have to believe that we it didn't it doesn't end with Blair. That kind of experience doesn't end with Blair. It'll be a different one for your generation, but it'll be your own. Maybe who knows? Maybe it already happened with Slender. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, it's <laughs> it's um, but it is rare. I will I will grant you that it, it's not something that comes along. I mean, that's why they're so special because they are. It is so rare. Um, but um, but I'm hopeful. Yeah, it's about all you can do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll let you go here. It's for nice talking, and I'm glad I got some input from you. All right, man. Take care. Thanks a lot. All right. See you. All right, Dan. We're going to let you go because we don't want any trouble with your wife, and (laughs) we don't want you to get in trouble, and we'd like to have you on again when you get the Southern uh, Gothic horror thing going on. So Yeah, man. Like, you know, just give me a shout, and hopefully we'll be, you know, back in production here in the next few months. But, but yeah, we'd love to be on. All right. That's awesome. I think yeah, we're going to let you go. Man, your royalty. Thanks, Dan. You are always welcome, man. Thank mm-hmm. you for that, All though. Right, guys, take care. Stay Jesus. safe. Thank Great you, talking Thank to you. you. Thank, you, so Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thank you. Okay, be good. <laughs> What's the fun in that? <laughs> yeah, <we're through>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and hell, he's eating dinner, and I'm about to go to bed. Well, that's that. A little bit. All right, that's a wrap. I can stop recording, I think, unless anybody wants to do any funny outtakes. I just wanted to say, Angelique and Nick, you are the first two people to know what the fuck Noroi or Koji Shiraishi are. Oh, my God, dude. That movie is fucking...